Welcome to You Masterclass, the award-winning podcast written and produced by students in the Film Studies program at UMass Amherst. I'm Emily Ko. Season two, episode two. I am so, so excited for this one. Before we dive right in, I want to take a moment to thank the Roy family and the jury of the Michael S. Roy Awards because last semester, our first episode of season two on One Night in Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom won the podcasting category. Check out that episode if you haven't yet. Special shout out to Professor Daniel Pope, our supervisor, and Professor Barbara Zecchi, our nominator. Today, it's just me. Jackie is away for these next few episodes, but if you want to get to know her and every other member of the UMasterclass team, listen to our new trailer out now. And of course, stay up to date with all things UMasterclass like new episode releases and other fun posts by following us on Instagram at UMasterclassPod. So what are we talking about today? Hint, hint, the Eternals came out very recently. We're not talking about the Eternals, but we are talking about the director, Chloe Zhao. There are actually going to be two parts to this. So you're listening to part one right now, and we're focusing on her three films, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, The Writer, and Nomadland. So Songs and a little bit of The Writer will be in the first part, and then we'll finish up The Writer and talk about Nomadland in the second part. Nomadland actually did very well at the Oscars this past April. It won Best Picture, and Chloe Zhao made history by becoming the first woman of color to win Best Director. Frances McDormand, who stars in the film, won Best Actress. Three wins for Nomadland. Speaking of three, we have three amazing guests, one of whom includes Professor Robin Blades, one of Chloe Zhao's college professors back in 2002. Professor Blades is on leave in Greece right now, and she so graciously was willing to speak with me about Chloe Zhao's films and feminist filmmaking in general as well. I also spoke with J.D. Swarzynski, a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication at UMass Amherst. He has some experience being a nomad, so he talks about his experience with that and his thoughts on Nomadland. I think he has such an interesting and personal connection to this film, so make sure you tune in to the second part to listen to our conversation and the segment on this Best Picture winner. But I first talked to Christian Buckley, whom I consider an expert on the Marvel Universe, and he's also the one who started the You Masterclass podcast. If you want to hear more about how he created UMasterclass during his last year at UMass, listen to our new trailer. Have I promoted our new trailer enough yet? (laughs) 
So, like I said, The Eternals just came out, and it is a Marvel movie directed by Chloe Zhao. I chatted with Christian before its release about his expectations for the film, and if you also don't know anything about Marvel like me, don't worry, here's a little explanation about how The Eternals fits into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, right now, the MCU is in a weird spot because ever since... John Favreau's Iron Man in 2008, they've been building to this inevitable culmination that was Endgame in 2019. And then of course a pandemic hits and then all their projects after that get pushed and reshuffled, some completely butchered because there were some that were addressing a pandemic plotline and that had to be removed. But when the Eternals comes into play, I think this is really interesting because they're sort of entering a new era of the MCU right now, where a lot of their older stars are retired. Uh, They're trying to elevate newer, younger actors with characters that some of them may have been created very recently, like Shang-Chi recently that did huge numbers. And he, I'm sure, is going to be a focal point moving forward. But when the Eternals comes in is the Eternals is based off a 1970s sci-fi trippy comic book epic that Jack Kirby created. And Jack Kirby is a illustrator who worked with Stan Lee and a bunch of other Marvel writers to sort of bring to life all these characters. Like he designed Spider-Man. Jack Kirby was integral to Marvel and Eternals is all him. And this was like peak of, you know, like imagine some of the things going on in the 70s, just creative freedoms fly in and trying to bring that to sort of this Iliad Odyssey level space drama it's tough to adapt and I think where that's coming in now is interesting because with the scope of the MCU it's always ground level what's this person doing to make them superior and the Eternals is asking the question of okay these people have existed since the beginning of time this cast they've been in hiding for so long because they just want to be normal people so badly how does that fit in and after 25 MCU projects like I think that's an interesting angle they haven't tackled yet so that's sort of where they're coming into play sort of kicking off a new era where were these people this whole time well now we're going to find out because they didn't want to be in the spotlight so it's interesting When I watched the trailer for The Eternals, I could definitely see her style, the types of shots that she has repeatedly used in her previous films, films that we're talking about today. There's one scene specifically that is coming to me from one of the earlier trailers. Like there's a sunrise on a beach somewhere and you just see like this monolithic spaceship coming in. And a lot of that I think is like the tones that she uses in a lot of her films the not lack of fear but like the the boldness to be like hey we're hanging on this like I don't care if you're bored of this shot like we're gonna like you're gonna get to know the stitches on Angelina Jolie's headpiece right now like it matters and I, I respect that a lot I love that I see her style and I think that she probably really enjoyed having all those set designers and construction departments at hand to create these worlds but she always cuts back to the medium shot right, of, of her characters, right, so that she's always integrating them and then lets them move into deep space where they kind of contemplate their place in the universe, right? So, so once I saw the trailer and thought about it, I thought, yes, I can definitely see this. 
That was Professor Robin Blades, the Emily Dickinson Professor of Film Studies at Mount Holyoke College, Chloe Zhao's alma mater. Such a small world. Mount Holyoke is like 20 minutes away from UMass and, of course, part of the Five College Consortium. Like I said before, Professor Blades actually was one of Chloe's professors back in 2002, but more importantly, much of Professor Blades' scholarly work focuses on women and film. She's the author of Women's Experimental Cinema, Critical Frameworks, which is an anthology that provides information about 15 influential experimental women filmmakers whose works have historically been overlooked. You'll get to hear a lot more from Professor Blates later on, but first, who is Chloe Zhao? Chloe Zhao is originally from Beijing, China. She attended boarding school in London, finished up high school in LA, and then attended Mount Holyoke College to get her bachelor's in political science. You can see she moved around a lot. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to call her Chloe. She just feels closer. I mean, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but she was a five college student, and I just feel like she's one of us. Anyway, she ended up in New York working as a bartender and doing other temporary gigs. She was even a party promoter at one point. Then she ended up applying to the graduate film program at NYU. She's always had a thing for telling stories, though. She drew manga when she was younger and wrote, and maybe even continues to write under a pseudonym, fan fiction. She talks about this on Sam Fragoso's podcast, Talk Easy, but unfortunately, she does not reveal her alias. Quick plug for Talk Easy, Sam Fragoso's podcast. The podcast's slogan, if you will, is where people sound like people. He has these intimate conversations with filmmakers, actors, politicians. His guests are truly amazing, so Check it out after you finish listening to You Masterclass. Back to Chloe. Spike Lee was one of her mentors at NYU. I mean, imagine going to Spike Lee's office hours. Amazing. <laughs> it's at NYU where she found her voice as a filmmaker. She was drawn to the American West, and she became inspired by photojournalist Aaron Huey's pictures of the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, home to many people of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe, which is the filming location and setting of her first film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me. Songs debuted at Sundance in 2015, the film went on to be featured at the Cannes Film Festival, and it also got a couple of nominations at the 31st Independent Spirit Awards. Chloe spent nearly three years doing research and writing the script, which entailed immersing herself into life at Pine Ridge and developing relationships with the people there. During this time, she lost funding for the film, and unfortunately, her apartment in New York was broken into. She lost a lot of equipment and the footage that they had already shot at Pine Ridge. 
This was, of course, devastating, and it's reasonable to assume that it would have been easier to give up at this point. But she took the money that she already had, raised a bit more, and set her intentions on presenting truth. In her interview with Crosscuts, she says, quote, We had to go with truth in front of the camera, because truth was all we could afford. My job was to capture authentic moments Pine Ridge and my cast were giving me and try to navigate a story around it, unquote. The result? A contemplative portrait of the joys and struggles of life at Pine Ridge. The film follows Johnny Winters, played by John Reddy, and his sister, Jayshawn Winters, played by Jayshawn St. John. The characters have a close relationship and were brought into the story as they grapple with the death of their absent father, and as Johnny is preparing to leave the reservation with his girlfriend, Aurelia, who's going to college in L.A. At the same time, we observe Jayshawn as she encounters some of the realities of living on the reservation, the good and the difficult. What comes to mind when I say bonfire? There's something intimate and profound about gathering around, listening to the crackling of the wood, and watching the embers float up and disappear into the sky. Maybe you've had some deep conversations here. A revealing and impactful bonfire scene is common to all three of Chloe's films, And it's here around a campfire where we can get a sense of the tensions that exist on this reservation. Johnny and Jayshawn are sitting with their half-brothers after their dad's funeral. And they're talking about their respective relationships with their father. The scene starts out with a close-up on Johnny's side profile as he talks to one of his half-brothers, George, about how their father was pretty much absent throughout his whole life. As George starts talking, we get a close-up on him as well in a similar composition, but we don't get a conventional shot-reverse shot. Rather, there's a close-up on George, but the focus is initially still on Johnny. As George starts talking, the focus shifts onto him, and Johnny becomes blurry and part of the blurry background, creating shallow focus. This composition, coming at the characters from the side with shallow focus, is common to the three films that we're talking about today. There aren't a lot of fast cuts either. The film definitely uses longer takes, giving us enough time to have that racking focus. And we get that observational, documentary-esque touch. And like I said, these shots aren't straight on. They're from the side as if we're sitting next to them. Take his last name. Had that last name ever since I was a kid. About you, did you take his last name or what? Fuck that, bro. My stepdad was there for me my whole life, so I took his last name. George Iron Bear. Fuck George Winters. <laughs> The composition changes a bit, however, when we get to the half-brother who had the closest relationship with their father. We get more of a medium close-up, but it's from the front of his face, and this is when the conversation starts to shift. So he was pretty close to your dad? 
or dead, whatever. <laughs> the closest, I suppose, I guess that's what I hear, but who knows with that guy. Well, you know what? You're lucky, you know, you're lucky you had him around as a dad. We're kind of standing in the dark with our father, you know, we didn't really know him as much as he did. He liked his drink, I didn't really care about that much. Where did you even get this alcohol from? Ain't it illegal on this res? Swiped it from my old man's closet, what you think? <laughs> I'm not too sure how you guys get it down this way. I mean, they just took a vote on white clay. You know, if we legalize alcohol, they're gonna have a lot more. If we gonna legalize have a... alcohol, businesses are gonna boom. Alcoholic businesses. Yeah, What's gonna happen to the rest of them? They're gonna stay the same? The alcoholic Every... businesses are gonna boom? And so is the crime? What about the younger guys? The ones that have to deal with a drunken parent coming home? They're gonna home. deal with it either way. You just heard the conversation sort of change topics, and they start discussing alcohol on the reservation. There's some disagreement happening here because it is a contentious issue. Let's take a brief moment to talk about the context surrounding Pine Ridge's relationship with White Clay. White Clay is a small, unincorporated community almost right on the southern border of South Dakota and Nebraska. Although the Pine Ridge Reservation itself is dry, alcohol is illegal there, there were a lot of illicit alcohol sales, millions of cans every year coming from the four liquor stores that were in White Clay. Many people on the reservation struggled with alcoholism, fetal alcohol syndrome, unemployment, and poverty. And a lot of this is associated with these illegal alcohol sales coming from White Clay. There were many deaths at White Clay as well. But in 2017, the Nebraska Supreme Court made the decision to close the four liquor stores and stop these sales. Since then, one of the liquor stores is now the White Clay Makerspace, a nonprofit that provides a community space where artists are able to work in the back and sell their art in the front. Artists are charged a dollar a month to rent a space, and they're provided with the tools and supplies that they need to create. So the space is meant to be empowering. They're reclaiming the space that used to be a source of hardship and harm for many residents of Pine Ridge, and they're using it to uplift indigenous culture and art. I mention this because the way in which many journalists and creatives who want to tell stories that belong to Pine Ridge produce works that may end up only really fixating on the alcoholism, the unemployment, the poverty, the difficulties that the residents have had to undergo, to the point where their works become fetishistic and voyeuristic. It is, of course, important to touch on these issues because they are very much part of the reality of a lot of people's lives on this reservation, but it does not constitute the whole story. There's a review essay published in 2016 in the journal Great Plains Quarterly, written by Professor Akeem Reinhardt at Towson University. Professor Reinhardt's areas of expertise include indigenous North America, specifically Lakota. 
The title of the essay is Seeing Pine Ridge, and Professor Reinhardt examines three documentaries about the reservation. He talks about how many producers of culture and commentators, like journalists, writers, other creatives, constantly only really cover things like unemployment, poverty, domestic violence, school dropouts, to the point where nuance is lost. And the implication is that, quote, the only thing that ever happens on the reservation is that people struggle mightily. Only endless battles against various external forces, whether a too distant federal government or a too close slew of beer stores, unquote. So it seems as though observers aren't really interested in helping the people of Pine Ridge or understanding its history. They're more so interested in creating this quote-unquote exotically tragic emotional portrayal of Indian tragedy that indulges in the dominant culture's desire to cry and show their condemnation for these external evil forces in a way that leads to a reductive picture of the Oglala people. He says, quote, In the end, what is missing from all of these films is a sense of achievement or agency among Oglala people that moves beyond valiant resistance to evil external forces, unquote. He then mentions how Pine Ridge has a successful tribal college, radio station, the reservation hosts big cultural events, it has made important improvements in its transportation system. These are nuances and part of the many stories of Pine Ridge that have been lost in the way in which many people have captured life on this reservation. He's speaking in the context of American culture. He's not dismissing these documentaries' attempts to highlight issues that do exist on this reservation, but he is saying that these documentaries are not engaging with the complexities, which include the residents' accomplishments, that also exist on this reservation. Some of the filmmakers of these documentaries have perhaps led with their internalized guilt, tethered to the American history of colonialism, and they end up portraying the Oglala people as indefinite victims who cannot help themselves. Think trauma porn. Of course, we should all be aware and educate ourselves on American colonialist history and the injustices that Native Americans have historically faced, but many works are not capturing many parts of Pine Ridge that also deserve to be seen. And therefore, these works are perhaps not helpful in getting people to actually genuinely care about the reservation. Take a listen to Chloe on Sam Fragoso's Talk Easy podcast speak about how she is distanced from this type of guilt as a non-American person. And also me being someone is an American, I don't, I intellectually know what happened in this country. But I don't have the chips on my shoulders. I don't have that kind of, I don't feel the need. I need to romanticize Native Americans or I can't say this because right. they're victims. I don't feel that way at all. You mean you don't have the guilt? I don't have the guilt. Yeah, that's the word. I don't have the guilt. And that guilt is a very dangerous thing when we look at Native Americans because if we start treating them like human beings because we think we all, like 
you think you own them something you yeah. and then you you that's dangerous cuz they're not they're individual human beings just like us mm. so they trusted you because of how you were in one of the documentaries that professor reinhardt talks about the director explicitly mentions his guilt he narrates there's blood on my hands there's blood on our hands for the things that were done for the things that were left undone so there seems to be this sort of hyperfixation on the emotional, the guilt, the maudlin, if we were to use Professor Reinhardt's words, that overshadows what could truly initiate change, which is analyzing or at least examining how structural forces like colonialism contribute to the difficulties that people on the reservation are facing. So where does that leave Chloe's film? It's documentary-like in a lot of ways and even based on some parts of the actors' real lives, but it is a fiction film with a plot. The film does touch on white clay and alcohol because, like I said before, it is a part of the reality of this reservation. But maybe we could say that Songs captures much more than that. We can say that it's about adolescence, coming to terms with change, especially after high school graduation. And we see that through Johnny trying to decide whether to leave the reservation with his girlfriend, Aurelia. It's about family love, and we see that through Johnny and Jay Sean's relationship. It's about uncovering the beauties of your culture and your roots, despite the difficulties that may exist. And we see that through Jay Sean's character, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. One of my favorite sequences is when Johnny and Jay Sean are playing together. We hear a delicate melody, you can hear it right now, as they play in a field with the Badlands in the background. The camera is handheld, so we just observe their joy. Then we get this beautiful extreme long shot of both of them in the Badlands. They're tiny, tiny figures in the scene, and they call out to each other and we hear their echoes. We do get a little bit of conflict later on because Jayshan finds out that Johnny is planning to leave the reservation and live out in LA with Aurelia. Jayshan is really upset by this and at this point in the film, Jayshan kind of starts doing her own thing. In other words, we see her less with her brother. Earlier on in the film, Jayshan meets Travis, who is an artist. He makes clothing, interior decorations, and does tattoos as well. His room is covered with his creations, and he describes one of the blankets on the wall to Jayshan. I'm kind of in the progress of some... What is this? Sewing and it's a little blanket I made from my son in prison for his birthday. He's going to be turning one. I have one. It's pink and purple. That's cool. Later on, she tells him that she'll help him sell his art if he makes her a powwow dress. And Jayshan becomes his assistant slash bookkeeper. 
The Akta Lakota Museum and Cultural Center's website explains that a powwow is a, quote, Native American gathering focused on dance, song, and family celebration. It celebrates the connections to tradition and spirituality, to the earth, and to one another in a social, personal, and spiritual meeting, unquote. So right at the moment, Jay Sean and Travis come to an agreement. She'll help him out in exchange for a powwow dress. The melody that we heard before during the scene where Johnny and Jay Sean are playing starts playing again. Travis makes her a shirt with a number seven on it, essentially her work shirt, and gives her the quote-unquote official tour of his artwork. I mainly deal with clothing and art. I even do a little bit of interior decorating, painting. Like if people don't like looking at the bare walls, I'll, I'll do something like this for them, you know? I got some baby clothes, some fringes, make it like a little native, you know? And I do art like this, like posters. Oh, this one right here, Res Life isn't no joke. They're all joking around, smoking. And the Res isn't no joke, you know? But sometimes we look at it as a joke. And then they start selling. The whole green thing going. I just say I like that. Make sure they see the res life. Yeah, this work. is all hand sewn, handmade, yeah, eight stuff. hours of suit. Uh, you will never yeah, see clothes like this in the world. My little assistant's got changed. Thank you. You can really get a sense of his artistry and his creativity here. Jishan becomes closer to Travis as she continues to work with him. After a long day of selling, as they're packing everything up while the sun sets, she asks him, Why do you like seven so much? Oh, that, there's, there's way too many reasons. Way too many. Seven is the most influential and used number in the Bible. And it is our culture's most sacred and revered number. Crazy Horse said, everything all seemed to have ended at wounded knee. But it will all begin again with the seventh generation, you know? And that's you. When he talks about their culture's valuing of the seventh generation, of Jishan's generation, we get the signature close-up on Jayshan with the shallow focus as Travis is talking in the background. The music starts playing, so this is presumably a big moment for her. Even though the film's documentary-like style limits our access to subjectivity and to the exact thoughts or psychology of the characters, we do see Jayshan react. She seems sort of shocked. She turns around for a brief moment after Travis says this. The music continues to play, and we see Travis giving someone a tattoo on his face, specifically on his cheek. Then we see Jayshawn and her friend playing with temporary tattoos. You know, those press-ons where you hold it down and put water on it. Well, we see Jayshawn put it on her face, on her cheek as well. This parallelism shows the admiration that she has for Travis and his art. We also see Travis joking around and riding Jayshawn's small bike, and we can get a sense of their close relationship. 
Later on, Jayshawn ends up seeing Travis drinking with his friends. He apologizes. Sorry, I had to see this, Jayshawn. I'm sorry. And how come is it that we never get in trouble when we smoke, but every time we fucking pick up this motherfucker, we somehow, someway, somewhere, sometimes seem to fuck up? I never drink a friend of myself. My, my go brothers too. Jam, always so go always get a baby spill. The next day, Jayshawn comes to Travis's house and her friend explains what happened. They got into it and there's beers all over. They're drinking and drinking. My dad beat up Travis. Travis beat up my dad and they all went to jail. Jayshawn starts organizing his room, which is in disarray from the night before. She puts back the clothes that were on the floor, and again, you can see the admiration and respect that she holds for him and his art. It's during the scene where she finds her beautiful, colorful powwow dress that Travis has made. Personally, I think this is one of the most moving moments of the film. I think it could have been really easy to fixate on Travis's struggle with alcohol and his past, he does briefly mention that he was in prison, and obviously we do see him drinking with his friends, but we see him through Jay Sean's eyes in a way. We see not only his incredible skill, but also his passion for creating. I really love Travis's character. Although he ends up going to jail, we don't get a melodramatic scene and a hyperfixation on his drinking. I'm not saying that we should never have these sorts of scenes, but I love how in this film we meet Travis as an artist. We meet the part of his identity that he embraces with his own agency, and nothing changes the beauty of his artistry. There's a 2013 study that surveyed Native artists, mostly from Pine Ridge, about their experiences. The White Clay Makerspace cites this study. Their website says, quote, 51% of Native households on Pine Ridge Reservation depend on home-based enterprises for cash income, and 79% of those home-based enterprises on Pine Ridge Reservation consist of some form of traditional arts." Unquote. These percentages are from a little while ago, but like the study concludes, the arts is deeply rooted in Native culture and in life at Pine Ridge. So it's powerful that now the white clay maker space is providing support for artists like Travis. In the film, Johnny ends up deciding not to leave the reservation. We get a voiceover at the end of the film over a montage. We see Jay Sean visit Travis in jail, and we also see her dancing in her beautiful powwow dress. Johnny says, My sister Jay Sean, she's got a thing about this place. She sees things I don't. She's a good one. Jayshawn is exposed to some of the harsh realities of living on this reservation, but I think she also recognizes the beauty and joys of reservation life at Pine Ridge as well. 
Perhaps the title could also be Songs My Sister Taught Me because by the end of the film, Johnny seems to start seeing a little bit of how Jayshan views Pine Ridge and relishes the joys of living there. But I think the title refers to her close relationships with people on the reservation, not just Johnny, but also people like Travis and how she's navigating growing up on Pine Ridge. Although many members of the community like the film, Willie White, an Oglala Lakota filmmaker who lives on Pine Ridge, said the film, quote, fell into those tropes a lot of us have started our careers around, which was taking back our narratives, playing into poverty porn, unquote. But on the other hand, like I said before, many Pine Ridge residents like the film, and perhaps Chloe's perspective and style of filmmaking is what opens up the film to capture more of the nuances of reservation life, to capture things that we may not necessarily see in documentaries that Professor Reinhardt talks about in his essay. I think when one watches her films, they feel elegiac, really regardless of what you're thinking about in relation to the landscape, in relation to Native American life. I, there's, the tone of it is, I think, of something that we've lost or something that maybe we're losing in relation to time, in relation to space, in relation to each other. She just captures a lot. The importance of understanding film as a medium that messages are always being sent. We, we think about entertainment, we think about being lost in narrative, but they are shaping our very selves all the time. So I think all film is, is powerful and needs to be understood in very specific ways. Her films, I think, open doors for us to, to think. And that's, you know, that's really what I think is most valuable in filmmaking. I am a big fan of what is now called slow cinema, but I know films have been made uh, slowly forever, and there have always been great filmmakers who work in that mode. And she really does it. She gives you time. She gives you light. She gives you um, the chance to look at faces in ways that are really thought-provoking. But it's her style that, that allows that, I would say. Professor Blades also reflects back on the time when she was one of Chloe's professors. She doesn't remember Chloe because it was an intro to film class filled with 40 people back in 2002, but she does emphasize the importance of taking an intro to film class. You know, one of the things I've always said at definitely to the administration of Mount Holyoke is really everybody should take introduction to film because you cannot be an educated person if you can't read a film with specificity. So I thought, well, good. She, she took this intro to film and then she later in life decided she wanted to speak through the medium. We all watch film all the time. We see moving images everywhere. And for the most part, I think people actually don't see the images. They look into a parallel universe. They don't think about how it's constructed to make meaning. And if you do that, you are manipulated by it. There's just no question. You, you see and you become the person you are hailed to be through that camera work. If you don't notice that, you can't read it and control your interpretation. To me, most people, I'm sure as film students, you have this problem. 
people will talk to you about a film and you'll you'll start going they go wait how did you see that <laughs> because people just don't see where when you're used to doing what we do we are reading it we're, we're noticing patterns we are evaluating decisions right you can't help it when you're used to watching film in this way and i think everybody can benefit you know on some level you know again one of those things I say is kind of a joke is that at the end of my intro class, the thing I really want to hear is you've ruined film for me because now nobody will go to the movies with me because I, I keep saying, look, look. <laughs> right. <laughs> the classic film students. <laughs> that everybody should be able to do that. And I think one's tolerance for mediocre film goes down, but as you know, the world of the cinema is enormous. And the more you see and understand, the more you can grasp and experience, you know, it's just an extraordinary medium that most people know just a fraction of. Professor Blades actually includes Chloe's sophomore film, The Writer, in the syllabus of her intro to film course, where she also teaches using only films directed by women. She describes the writer in the context of Chloe's other films. It's like Nomadland. It's, it, you know, when I think about um, songs my brother taught, brothers taught me and then The Rider and then Nomadland, The Rider sits in the middle of it. It's like it's a condensation of the first film, fewer characters, but similar in, in many ways. And then Nomadland sort of digs more deeply, I think, into the situation. But again, we talked about that, that style that she has that is just so extraordinarily moving. Chloe's second feature, The Writer, continues her connection with Pine Ridge, which she has called her cinematic universe. After Chloe finished up songs, she visited Pine Ridge Reservation again a few times. She saw how Brady Jandro, who plays the main character named Brady Blackburn in the film, was training horses in this elegant, almost magical way. He had a special presence to him, so she decided that he would be the subject of her next film. She doesn't stray too far from songs in that the actors and the writer draw from their real lives to play their characters. She doesn't necessarily prefer people who don't act for a living. She doesn't really make a dichotomous distinction between non-professional and professional acting, but she does care about authenticity and connecting the character to the real person who's playing them. I need that actor or non-actor to have something who they are that's already the character. Something, even just 5%. Right. So I, I look for, I cast in that way. Something that connects them together. Yeah, and it's not something that a professional actor can get there because they train to, to, to be that role, and that's not enough for me. It has to have something. So it, you could be the best actor in the world, but if there isn't something about who they are, that's that character, right. I, I, I don't think I could uh, do it. And that is weird because... Then you're not talking about professional or non-professional actors. You're just talking about whether that person's going to work for you. Or you're right. talking about people. Right. 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 You're, but it's funny because now you're saying you have three... That was again from her talk, Easy Episode. 
When she met Brady, she wanted to build a story around him. They thought of different things that they could do, but nothing was really working. Then, in April of 2016, Brady got injured. And in the film, we're actually able to see the real footage of him falling off his horse at a bronco riding competition where his skull was crushed. This was a serious head injury. And in the film, Brady watches a video of his injury on his phone. We also get a close-up of the bandage on his head. He removes it to reveal a long line of staples. And with this intimate close-up, you can almost feel how much it hurts, how tender it is. The writer follows Brady Blackburn after this head injury. The doctors tell him that he cannot ride anymore, and he tries to live a quote-unquote normal life, aka no riding. One of the things that he does is try finding a job. He doesn't have much experience besides riding and training horses. He doesn't have a GED. So he ends up working at a grocery store, which is really unfulfilling to him. He's always felt that his life purpose, that his identity is being a cowboy and riding horses. We get a better sense of this cowboy identity and the expectations that come with that during this campfire scene. Alright, I'm extinguishing the fire. Only for now though, because that is already the end of the first part. Make sure you tune into the second part. I talk about cowboys, westerns, Professor Blades talks about feminist filmmaking, JD talks about nomadic living. I mean, come on, there's such exciting stuff coming up, so go and listen to the second part. But first, I do want to thank Professor Blates and Kristen Buckley for giving such great insight. Special thanks to Adam Kiros, the Digital Media Lab Desk Supervisor at UMass Amherst Libraries, who's always been so helpful with reserving recording rooms and a wonderful source of support. Special thanks to Ruben Garcia, Chief Broadcast Engineer in the Journalism Department, for helping us out in the Journalism Radio Podcasting Room. And thanks to the crew, Sheila Dillon and Jackie Celestino for helping out with the research and writing process, Rihanna Jackson for keeping our Instagram alive and beautiful, Joseph Therese for helping out with the editing process. And thanks to you for listening to You Masterclass, your go-to podcast for all things film and media, all written and produced by film study students at UMass Amherst. Make sure to subscribe and share this episode with everyone in your life. I'm your host, Emily Ko. See you in part two. Thanks. Thanks.